AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for January 12, 2016. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today we have a special guest, Francis Chinfroca. You're the founder of uh, Bayshore Networks. Yes. And uh, first of all, welcome. And, Thank you uh, so much. Great to be here. Uh, glad to have you with us. Tell us a little about yourself. Well, okay, so I'm a cybersecurity practitioner. Our company, Bayshore Networks, we do uh, cybersecurity for the industrial internet. Mm -hmm. So we're very much focused on those industrial applications where machines are talking on, the, uh, on networks, mm -hmm. not just the internet. And uh, it's such a big space and such a growing space of tremendous amount of vulnerabilities as well as visibility in general. So um, it's, it's been a very interesting business for us. Oh, very good. So we'll be talking a lot about industrial internet in a little bit here. Okay. And uh, so what we'll do is introduce John. Back again. <laughs> Welcome, <laughs> Almost John. Almost every week, thanks. And uh, online we have Jim Clausing. Welcome, Jim. Hi, good to be here. So, uh, you know, first thing I think is going to be particularly relevant, uh, John, I guess you had covered last week a little bit about some speculation on the impact or what the causes behind a, uh, a power outage. Right. And uh, tell us a little so more. So basically we reported last week that there was a large power outage in the Ukraine. Mm -hmm. um, and at the time there was a lot of speculation that this looks like it might have been uh, an intentional act, mm -hmm. uh, probably some malware in play where they were able to worm their way into their environment, maybe laterally move, and then take out uh, the infrastructure that controls the power um, generator systems. Mm -hmm. I'm not quite sure all the devices involved there. SANS put out an article, which is actually pretty good. And one of the things I, I learned that I didn't know about SANS, they actually have a blog just for uh, industrial control systems. So I thought that was interesting because I hadn't actually stumbled across that before, but it's ics.sans.org, I think, gets you their blog. In any event, um, they did, there are a couple of quotes I grabbed out of here, out of this article, but it's better if you just take a, a read of it because they kind of go through some details. Mm -hmm. That would be too long to go over here. Um, but they, based on their analysis, they assessed with pretty high confidence, looking at company statements, media reports, and some firsthand analysis that this was definitely a coordinated intentional attack, which is kind of what we were theorizing it really looked like, right. that the attackers demonstrated planning, coordination, and that there was some use of malware in play, and that they attempted to delay restoration by wiping the SCADA servers after they caused the outage, which is interesting. So mm -hmm. there was some intentional destruction after the fact to at least make that power outage persist longer than right. maybe, um, you know, not just simple rebooting the machine and have things go back to normal. Now, the destructive aspect, they were, it was mostly just wiping machines and the control systems as opposed to trying to create uh, power conflicts of some sort that would be... Uh, as far as I'm aware, um, I don't think they got into super detail of what actually okay. was uh, wiped, but they mentioned that some of the SCADA servers were mm -hmm. wiped. And then one of the other things they mentioned here is that the attack consisted of three components, the malware what that was in play that they leveraged in order to take control of the systems. Um, but they also, they think that there was some uh, coordinated denial of service attack on their phone systems. So when customers were trying to call in, yeah to report a power outage they couldn't actually get through. That's right. Um, we've heard of that before with other things, you know, some of these banking ones, they do like DDoS the, the yeah. customer's phone so that if you're doing a large transaction, the bank can't call the customer things like that, but it's a little reverse in this yeah. sense. Now, just to be the, uh, I, I, I don't want to be too skeptical about that concept, but. I mean, it could be a lot of customers I'm, I'm trying to call in at the same time, well, right? I'm kind of wondering how many times they've experienced a case where 600,000 homes had a power outage, you know, or organizations had a power outage, and what kind of call volume might expect to get come back, you right. know, coming back and what kinds of problems might exist. I mean, even I think the, uh, the, the telephone company might have had some clogs that perhaps didn't get fully reported. Just speculating on that. It right. may not have actually been a denial of service attack, but maybe it was. And the last piece or com last component of the three that they included, which I thought was interesting, is that there was a missing piece of evidence yeah. in that they never really said, you know, the power companies themselves never reported 
the actual cause uh, of the outage, which I think is what they're speculating because they didn't report, oh, you know, one of our generators had a failure or whatever, but like a normal expected kind mm -hmm. of thing, that that might be, a, you know, more of some rationale as to uh, why that this they might was, not be willing to admit right. the, root, the true right. cause or something right. along those something lines. Of that nature. Right. Now there was some speculation that Black Energy might have been involved in there this. There was, and, and they go into some detail in this uh, write-up about that, and it's a little nebulous still about how all the various components interplayed and whether they were directly part of the attack itself. Mm -hmm. uh, because it's hard to say. What's this? I don't think they have all the data from a forensic mm -hmm. aspect of a timeline of events kind of thing that happened here. But they do know that, you know, there was uh, black energy, there was the kill disk um, module that was in there. Whether those were actually used um, mm -hmm. on these systems and to what degree, I don't know that they actually have the answers for. But it's a, like I said, it's a longer write-up and it's, it's kind of interesting, so I would recommend mm -hmm. people check it out. Okay. Um, if I understand correctly, I say partners came to a very similar conclusion in, in their analysis of right. the event, perhaps a little the bit Sands earlier. The guys did Sands. say, you know, Black Energy is tied pretty closely to, I can't remember the name of the group now, a the, Russian uh, hacking group that I can't think of. Um, we talked about them last sorry, week. Yeah, my tongue. Right there <laughs> is it? Anyway. Um, and they said they wouldn't jump to conclusions still to say it was directly related to them. Yeah. Um, and black energy, but oh, something like sandworm, sandworm, yeah, sandworm. But so they didn't, you know, say 100%. It was these guys that did mm -hmm. this, but um, uh, but they did. They they talk a little bit about that in the article. So okay, it's interesting th th that point about uh, black energy specifically as one of the elements of the vector space mm -hmm. for this attack. It's basically file malware. All right. There mm -hmm. are signatures that you can get out there. We incorporated some of them in our product uh, that can recognize, you know, parts of that piece of black energy code. Mm -hmm. If you think about how ordinary malware gets infiltrated onto ordinary computers, the standard stuff, you mm -hmm. know, the phishing attacks, blah, yep. blah, blah. Once it got into those computers, then, as you're saying, you know, it, we, we, they don't know yet um, whether that was the vector, but something else happened. Right, there was something else in the you know, in the attack space that actually went and touched the actual machines, right. probably breakers or reclosers. Uh, I heard that that was what was involved, not so much generators. Okay. But but uh, uh, the the thing is that, it, as you say, you know, it, it's not yet known whether Black Energy itself was the key part of it. It may just have been a, a way in, right? right? Just a, a pretty simple, a basic hold. piece of malware, get into that network and then do stuff that's more sophisticated. And so that could mean, right, that the people who are behind Black Energy, you know, they provide a part of the technology, but it may be another group that yeah. actually That's absolutely a legitimate stuff. possibility. When you have a coordinated attack, you may have different organizations yeah. doing different portions of it. They may have been doing reconnaissance, in effect, oh. internal reconnaissance, oh, yeah. collecting information oh, about yeah. where the systems are, you know, providing addresses, that's a possibility. Or, or some of these guys may have just bought some of the black energy capabilities, you know, to, as a way to drop their first stage. There's a criminal underground there. They, they could have sold access to part of it. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's not uncommon for advanced attackers to use, you know, kind of a run-of-the-mill type of uh, piece of malware like that as a backdoor trojan to get in mm -hmm. and then they'll use that to pop and push back remote desktops to better machines inside that network you know mm -hmm. what i mean yeah. and then start working with those machines uh once they've laterally kind of wormed their way around so i think that gives us a pretty good segue into talking yeah. a little bit more about industrial internet and yeah. perhaps you know maybe we can start a little bit about what you know, define what you'd believe to be the scope of industrial internet. Yeah, well, that's a great question, Brian, um, and something that I think a lot of people struggle with, just understanding that. But we, we do need to look this back, I think, to, uh, to, to, to the, the Ukrainian, mm -hmm. um, the most distinctive thing to me about the Ukrainian incident is that it was so successful. All right. It was successful. They produced a, a massive outage across about three and a half hours. Mm -hmm. And so as exploits in the industrial internet go, it's distinctive because there really aren't that many. You can talk about mm -hmm. Stuxnet, you talk about Saudi Aramco, you talk mm -hmm. about the uh, hack in the uh, steel mill in Germany, and you know the one in uh, San Jose last year was physical, a mm -hmm. physical hack, mm -hmm. and then this one, and not too many others yeah. that are you know in the 
open literature. Well, in fact, you, you, you bring up a good point. There's been so much speculation about what might be possible yes. against the U.S. energy grid or, yeah. or you know, water treatment plants and things like that. Yeah. But there hasn't been that smoking gun to really, you know, hang your hat on and yeah. say, you know, this has been, and this is perhaps the first or most significant smoking Not gun. Not to get myself in any yeah. trouble, <laughs> but um, a lot of the activity, right, that has is not in the open literature. Mm -hmm. I'll just leave it at that. It's classified. Mm -hmm. All right. And um, you know, people. You mentioned CERT, SANS. Uh, there's also UCS CERT, ICS CERT in as part of DHS. Marty Edwards runs that group. They do very, very, very good work on all this. But again, you're right. But your question was industrial internet. All right. A lot of people talk about the Internet of Things, mm -hmm. which is supposed to be how your oven and your refrigerator send tweets, right? Mm -hmm. And we actually know about some, you know, some firewall companies that advertise their ability to keep switch reclosers in substations from sending out Facebook posts. I think, <laughs> I mean, you know, if you get people to buy a firewall product based on that, fine. But um, nobody we, would ever go onto a control system and use that to browse around, and you know, if they do, <laughs> you know, you got some problems. And I yeah. will tell you that we, there are some known cases where the synchrophaser networks, yeah. not to get too, synchrophasers are how in some parts of the country, advanced power systems are managed, mm -hmm. all right? And there are some... You have to keep the everything in, aligned in terms of phase or, terms of or they're fighting each other, power right? Factor, yeah. right, in parts of the uh, power transmission network. Mm -hmm. Fascinating subject, but my point about that in this context was the protocol, it's a very latency-sensitive protocol, all right? Mm -hmm. Because if you have a power, power factor management problem, spanning four, four milliseconds, mm -hmm. you got melted copper all over the place, mm -hmm. right? So it's a big <laughs> exactly. problem. But uh, there are known cases where they, they've found in the networks that carry that very latency sensitive traffic, mm -hmm. um, HTTP, <laughs> that can only be from script kitties, yeah, right. right? That can only be attack yeah. traffic. So it's there. But uh, I, I like to make a, a careful distinction when we talk about the industrial internet all right, of industrial machines that are connected to computer networks that are typically managed by IT organizations. Right. All right. And we like to be very narrow about this, mostly because you know we're running a business, and, and mm -hmm. so we want to uh, address a, uh, an important market in short amount of time that's mm -hmm. well focused. And you know, it, the critical infrastructure, building automation. You mentioned healthcare systems, water systems, manufacturing systems. Mm -hmm. Telephony systems, right, mm -hmm. which includes that uh, ties closely with financial systems. Right. It's all critical infrastructure, and it's all about machines that traditionally they do what they do very, very well. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, we're all pretty good at engineering and building vehicles and things like that. But it's kind of a new thing, really, over the last 10, 20 years, really, that all these machines are getting themselves onto networks through Ethernet connectivity. Right. For what reason? The primary reasons are secure remote access for diagnostics troubleshooting right. and telemetry integration for predictive analytics. You know, you, of you all the other, you didn't, you didn't mention operations cost reduction. Well, that's that's the business driver. <laughs> right. 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 That's the business driver. That's why you do yeah. uh, the the industrial internet applications. Right. But for industrial internet, the way we think about it is machines that traditionally do not have any kind of broad connectivity suddenly appearing on other people's right. networks. And so the security challenge, the CyberSec challenge with regard to that, I mean, the way I look at it, it, it basically comes down to network segmentation um, mm -hmm. and line of sight enforcement, being able to see what machines are doing remotely but not be able to write to them. Mm -hmm. All right, And so that, that gets you into, it's more difficult to your question, right? Uh, uh, because it's a different way to approach cybersecurity than the traditional problems of inspecting network ports and traffic, the internet weather yeah. that we're going to talk about shortly. Mm -hmm. So there are uh, uh, content inspection and awareness of data models that machines use when they speak to each other, which are quite, not terribly complicated, not terribly heterogeneous, but quite distinctive and different from yeah. what a lot of cybersec professionals are used to. Mm -hmm. That's an important part of the problem space. At the risk of oversimplifying the problem. That's not a bad thing to do. <laughs> well, I, I think you bring up a good point. I want to emphasize the point, which is, 
you know, in a typical situation where you have a human sitting in front of a computer and they're, and they're browsing the internet, mm -hmm. the behavior is going to be erratic because it's a person behind a thing. Whereas yeah. in an operational system, a manufacturing yeah. system yeah. or something, you would expect a more regular, consistent type of activity that's taking place and perhaps a much higher sensitivity to anything outside of that normal yep. behavior. So that, that's incredibly perceptive, absolutely on point. And you know, we, we machines or human when humans are interacting with machines, the uh, the statistical variance all right, is highly, you know, there's a lot of variables in it and it's 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 what it is. I mean, there's a whole a huge amount of practice around providing security for those, but uh, when you find when you're talking about machines, you're absolutely right. I mean, a pressure vessel—it's going to be at 600 degrees all day long and all night long. Mm -hmm. And if it ever deviates from that, you take a close look at it. So you probably with, want an alarm on that anyway, right? <laughs> exactly right. Well, you've got a SCADA system, but what you worry about now is if the SCADA is, is feeding telemetry out to an analytics application—is there an aperture for an attack? So but that's but the point—you know—just extend your point. Which again, as I say critical for understanding the space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, each different machine is much, much simpler mm -hmm. all right, in the way it presents to, for instance, statistical analysis and anomaly baselining. Mm -hmm. But there's tens of thousands of different kinds of machines. Yeah. Whereas, Lots of different kinds of machines. Uh, well, well, there there aren't that many different kinds of humans. Yeah. So I guess the other challenge so perhaps. It's, it's, a, it's a big problem, yeah. but a shallow problem relative yeah. to. Absolutely. Well, the other challenge perhaps is that, that, that rare circumstance. That is, under normal circumstances, the thing's going to behave very regularly yes. until something breaks, in which case if that message that it's broken doesn't yeah. get out, or if the feedback that's supposed to correct the problem doesn't get out, yeah, exactly. then you have a real challenge. So it really does require a deep understanding of not just the regular communications, but what the exception, exception circumstances and might be. And interestingly about that, I mean, we find, you know, in talking about the industrial internet as a business, a lot of people will say, uh, we're the next hot startup, you know, we got $40 million in venture capital, we're building analytics applications to predict failures in industrial machines. Mm -hmm. What we've seen again and again and again is that people who make machines like robots and jet engines and telephony switches like you do, they've got that already figured out. The applications already largely exist and they incorporate proprietary knowledge about each different kind of machine. Mm -hmm. The challenge is integrating the telemetry so that you can predict when a robot is going to have a failure, like break a reducer gear, which they do, you know, if they do too many emergency stops, right? That's something you can predict a week ahead of time and avoid the outage, which is measured in millions of dollars, right? Mm -hmm. If you can securely and safely do the telemetry integration, and to us, that's really what the industrial internet is about. And the security challenge is about network segmentation so that that data, which is very sensitive, doesn't go where it's not supposed to go. And another thing is you don't want anybody to be able to come in through that network link and change what the robot's doing. You want to be able to read but not write. Right. You know, in manufacturing, they call that line of sight. Mm -hmm. Absolutely critical rule for safety, not just security but also safety. So, so you don't put a virtual yeah. in front of that virtual line of sight. <laughs> we just haven't gotten that. <laughs> it, we like it seems like gateways. that's the uh, that's the uh, the vogue thing these days to be able to put the V in front of every function. Oh, well. Virtualize this. We, we like the word it. gateway because again, <laughs> you know, those industrial networks where the machines live, yeah. they're very sensitive for another reason, which is latency. Right. You know, you, you, people who who manage IT networks think a lot about bandwidth mm -hmm. as a key figure of merit. Right. The more bandwidth, the more throughput, the more mm -hmm. valuable that network is. When you go to talk to a guy. Uh, who runs a plant that makes you know vehicles mm -hmm. and he runs robots and torque tools and conveyor belts and paint machines to him 500 kilobits is a fast network yeah. <laughs> what he cares about is that each message going through there gets there within 10 microseconds of latency right. mm -hmm. very different set of constraints so that gets you if that network has a touch point with an IT network and somebody does a ping sweep, which sounds pretty innocent, mm -hmm. standard tool, right? You can suddenly destabilize a lot of production, which right. is a, a very different kind of a challenge. Mm -hmm. so. so when you go to secure and 
you know, the industrial internet, what are the kinds of things that really, I mean, you, we talked a little bit about behavior analytics, but yeah. what are the kind, how, do, how does one go about it, architecting or structuring the network or supporting, what kinds of little tips can be provided that help to get somebody thinking in the right direction? Again, connecting back to your earlier point, Brian, it's, if anything, not as complicated or deep a problem as the problem of detecting internet weather for mm -hmm. human applications. What you really need to do is, again, as I said, just to repeat myself, network segmentation and line of sight. You're looking for things in the network that violate particular, not terribly complex rules, but you have to be 100% about them, right? right? And, and so the, the, the thing that people need, if you are in a business where you're running uh, water purification systems or medical systems, you're already sensitive and, and knowledgeable about what, you know, what mm -hmm. it takes to make your environment and your machines stay up and running because mm -hmm. you care most about that, all right? Uh, uptime and availability and process integrity and efficiency and all those things. That's what you're trying to assure, mm -hmm. all right? So you're thinking mostly about safety problems. This is right. something that comes up a lot. Yeah. People who run industrial environments think about safety much more than they think about security. Mm -hmm. All right, when they think about security, they're like, yeah, it's not my problem. I mean, this network's closed off. The internet's out there. I'm in here. I've got, oh, wait a second. Somebody's got a wireless access point. Right. Uh, yeah. or, let's leave that to the side. But the, the mindset among production people is, I'm not gonna let anything compromise the safety, safe operation of these machines. Mm -hmm. And so that's what they're thinking about. And really, the this scale is an important part of the answer to your question. Because uh, example I love to give: um, what's a big company? You know, this about 300,000 people who work for your company. Right. I could take you to an auto assembly plant that has 50,000 connected machines in it. So if you're going to do things like firewalling or inspecting ports or that kind of analysis you run out of scale really, really fast. So to us, a key part of the answer is what we call policy-based inspection. You know, being able to say things like, I want to enforce line of sight on everything going in or out of that particular network environment. And that requires that you have you know, a filtration capability in the network that knows how to parse the machine, different protocols that they speak, all that frowsy stuff that they use, the different ways machines talk to each other, and to recognize when you're violating a relatively small number of rules. Mm -hmm. All right, but that's policy gets you to scale much faster than configuration does. So that's another yeah. another aspect. So when we take into account scale, yeah. you know, you have a lot of machines involved. It seems to me that life cycle becomes a significant okay. factor. Absolutely. Oh yeah. You can't just go out and just because you want to, you know. Like we do, you, you know, we patch. think about <laughs> security patch from right. Microsoft security every patch. Tuesday. Right, absolutely. Mm -mm. You cannot <laughs> do that with a PLC in a, right. in, a, in a plant or water filtration system or a sensor um, for a lot of reasons. Economics is one of them. Right. There's just so many of them. You just and, can't go out and replace your entire factory. And, and right. there's, there's another thing that I always like to give as an example, because I've seen this with my own eyes. If you're an IT professional or security professional, and, and you walk into onto the plant floor, you know, you got your OSHA approved protective eyewear and your hard hat, right? And you've got your patch, you're gonna patch up a piece of firmware on a, on a, on a PLC or other kind, or an HMI or other kind of machine. Um, the guys, the, the men and women who run the plant, see you coming and they don't let you, they don't let you right. in. Oh, they, don't right. want, they don't want you interrupting their productivity, right? More than that, in some places, like um, uh, auto plants, uh, you're violating union rules. Hmm. Okay, you do not <laughs> that have... can factor things too. Yeah, right. I mean, this becomes a, a major barrier. So the thing is that um, recognize. I, I think a lot of people fall down on this because there's a lot of talk about industrial internet security, mm -hmm. huge area, a lot of talk, a, huge, but a lot of work too. But a lot of the work is coming from people who are strong and sharp and knowledgeable and experienced in. IT and internet security. security. So they're thinking about securing endpoints and securing machines and doing patches and fixing password problems. Mm -hmm. It completely is not applicable to those environments. Right. That's a key problem. So for us, you know, we always think in terms of a gateway layer, which is partially virtual and partially soft. And those are the places where you put the kind of policy inspection that can you know, give the, the right kind of safety enforcement and security 
enforcement, and now you're not trying to go and patch machines that no one will let you touch, mm -hmm. and that have scheduled downtime twice a year, or maybe even once a year. So you're building a perimeter around an effect that helps to augment whatever's in place. Perimeter is a troublesome word. Yeah, you don't like that word. <laughs> I don't like that word because... What if I put a V in front of it? Virtual a virtual <laughs> Yeah, we'll, we'll, take, we'll, take, we'll take the V better. But the thing is, it's pervasive. All right. Yeah. There's pervasive pathways into industrial environments and out of them. Why you're doing it? Secure remote, anal secure remote access, predictive analytics, telemetry control. If you can control those through well-defined gateway points, then you have a, it's not a perimeter, it's not you know, localized mm -hmm. in topological space, it's pervasive. And that's why I don't like the word perimeter. It right, needs right. to be everywhere there's network. And to do that in an efficient, cost-effective, and manageable way is the real win. Right. Right? You've got to be able to do this everywhere, not just at a perimeter. Makes a lot of sense. So, so I mean, I, I guess you know, we kind of started with the obvious reason why now that this because is really the, the shutting down it, this is really coming to us <laughs> absolutely yeah. so yeah. the uh, the significance and i think you had kind of addressed it really way at the beginning that is the uh, where these systems had tended to be separate in the past they're being connected for all kinds of reasons operational you know efficiencies sure. to be able to monitor more systems be able to control more systems from a central place yep. and uh, because of that connectivity it creates a, the aperture a, is, a yeah, presents itself a, yeah. a, an additional liability from a security standpoint yeah. all right yeah um, I, I think that um, you know to reiterate a point that we made there you know you got in, in your work Brian I mean you guys are doing this every day it's what you do all day long you see all the attacks that are happening in the internet in, I don't want to see all of them. You don't want to see Well, <laughs> that's a good point, too. A lot of them are noise. And they're an awful lot. A lot of them is just noise, and some of them are interesting. In the uh, industrial and critical infrastructure space, which I think people are focusing attention on, the potential for massive civil disruptions, mm -hmm. you know, geopolitical disruptions right. connecting to the instability in the world, right? Um, again, how we, we, we haven't seen too many of them yet. You know, I think you, uh, just to reemphasize a point that I think you sort of, uh, I don't I wouldn't say stumbled on, but sort of brought up to, to emphasize that. <laughs> well, you point out that they're proprietary. Yeah. And I think that's a, an important aspect of this, that is yeah. most of the attack activity traditionally has been against what are generally, you know, published protocols. Right. And open so source software. Open source software. Or Windows. And I think that's well, perhaps why we've seen somewhat of a delay and yes. the, the targeting of industrial systems is like, well, you know, I could go over here, it's easier. I don't, particularly if you're trying to monetize things, but if you're trying to do damage, that's a little different yeah, situation. But, and that's an interesting point because what, if you can, it, it kind of gets to the, the motivations of the bad guys, mm -hmm. all right? Because, you know, a huge motivation for traditional, you know, cyber attacks, as you say, making money, mm -hmm. all right? It's a huge business. If your objective is to figure out how to shut down the power system in Ukraine, you more than likely, or at least to a greater extent, are interested in things like blackmail or geopolitical instability. Right. You're a state actor. Mm -hmm. All right. So I think it's really important to understand for people that, you know, there's a lot of scare talk here. I'm giving you a lot of scare talk, but because the, the attack surface, to use that jargon word, mm -hmm. is extremely broad, okay, but really quite shallow. Because if you can figure out how to bust a Siemens centrifuge, all right, destabilize how it works, or a FANUC robot or something like that, it's not the same as finding a zero day in Windows that makes the whole right. world vulnerable. Right. right? You're, you've got a few places that you can take that exploit, and they have to be places where you have another way in, past mm -hmm. the air gaps. Mm -hmm. Right. Something the like ability black to experiment on a lot of these ICSP so hardware like that centrifuge, I'm not going to have access to one to try to figure out an exploit on. But on Windows, yeah, or yeah. you know yeah, what I mean, all these other platforms, I have a lot of access to be able to reverse engineer mm -hmm. patches and figure out where the yep. holes are. Right. Whereas yep. it's a lot more difficult um, as an attacker, unless you're a nation-state attacker, where you you know, really someone set you up yeah. to give you the access yeah. to these types of things to experiment yeah. with. So hopefully not going off too far off on a tangent, but I would anticipate that more things, even in industrial control in the future, will likely be based on commodity hardware. And 
Maybe you don't agree? <laughs> I, that's a, a fascinating question. I, I'm not sure I agree or disagree. And the reason is because, you know, you think about computers. Mm -hmm. they, they're on a replacement cycle of three to five years. Yeah. Very, very rapid turnover in technology uh, innovation and generation. You know, you go to water purification, the sensors then that have been in the ground for 30 years, they'll be there another 30. Yeah. All right. So stuff doesn't change that much. And economics says you're not going to put an embedded computer with an encryption and an X509 stack on top of an $80 motor drive controller. I don't know. So it, it, let me uh, just to, yeah. to facilitate the debate a little bit. I don't yes. know that we'll come to any no. conclusion, but you know, I bought a Raspberry Pi for my daughter for Christmas. Which one did you get? The zero? Uh, it's the five dollar one. The two. No, the, the, they were sold out. The, oh, the five dollar one plus one, right? But the, yeah, it's yeah, the, yeah. Uh, yeah. But so um, thirty-five dollars for sure. the, the device. Mm -hmm. They're really designed to be able to develop or create these kinds of things. It's I mean, got not GPI necessarily. On it. Right, and it's, it's got, got a ADC lot of capability it. associated with Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah. And in terms of being able to facilitate automation of lots of things that we haven't even thought about automating yeah. today, yeah. it really provides a platform to really get, and I think the people factor is a big piece of this, that is what people know how to do will become how it gets done. Totally right, and what amazes me, I mean Raspberry Pi, you scratched the edge. <laughs> I've got a few of them on my desk. Raspberry Pi, for our you know, listeners who uh, may not be familiar with that, it's a computer. Yeah. All right. It's actually got a system on chip on it that runs Linux. It mm -hmm. runs a multi-process OS. The other thing that people will have heard about is the Arduino, mm -hmm. which is really just a breakout board for, for an AVR microcontroller. Yeah. Very, very different kind of a device. But they have GPIO. So what I hear people, I, I want to say this because I'm struck by the, 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 the emergence of what some people call the maker community. Mm -hmm. All right. People with, not, with don't have engineering degrees, do not understand electrical engineering, all right, are putting these things together and they take resistors and capacitors and they, and, and they build circuits. And, yeah, well, just with a soldering iron. And you, know, you watch people with soldering, I'm like, wow. Uh, uh, that used to be a craft. Yeah. But my point is that uh, you're right. I, I think there's a, a tremendous reduction of the uh, barrier mm -hmm. to building things that are more connected. Other side of that coin, which I think is important to stress, I would never use a Raspberry Pi or an Arduino to control, like a you know, like a quarter horsepower mower motor. You pointed Why? out the safety factor. Earlier. That's not it. It's oh. galvanic isolation. Oh, okay. Oh. All right. When you have, it's a, it's a, that's that's just disciplined industrial engineering. Mm -hmm. If you have a PLC, all right, it's got two Ethernet ports on it, mm -hmm. all right, because it's going to be part of a digital linear ring. It's talking to a computer network, a control network. Mm -hmm. It's also got a bunch of uh, you know, RS-485 ports or 24-volt you know, mm -hmm. you know, connection points where you talk to motor drive controllers or right. other equipment. If you look inside the device, the professional ones, mm -hmm. right, the real industrial equipment, ones, yeah. they're galvanically isolated yeah. so that you can never have a, a, a spike from a, a burnt out motor winding mm -hmm. go back up go and, back and, and burn out a computer. Right, right. Okay? Mm -hmm. So a Pi does not have that. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So, it, yeah. So, I, I think it's sort of it, it fits on either side of this. Yes. The, we're going to see influences from both directions. We are, absolutely. And yes. I think the what I was kind of driving at in terms of a point is that the complexity is going to go up, the yeah. potential for issues is going to go up, our need to be able to put protection measures into place yeah. is going to go up along with it. Yeah, and again, it's a scale problem. Because how do you, it, it comes back to risk management. You know, mm -hmm. It's never 100%, which I think makes a lot of cybersecurity people uncomfortable because they want a 100% solution. Mm -hmm. um, with industrial machines and industrial production, you're talking about process integrity. Safety is non-negotiable. Safety is never negotiable. Right. You can never have a machine do damage to people, personnel, or the environment. But um, everything else is risk management. Right. You got to get to 98% without spending billions of dollars. And that is a new area for cybersecurity professionals. Mm -hmm. All right, it's quite different in techniques and uh, practices from, uh, from classic cybersec. Absolutely oh. true. All right, very good discussion, thank yeah. you. So let's uh, take this over to Jim. And uh, Jim, you've been waiting patiently. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you have any uh, comments to share with us at the moment. No, but, I was, um, it, I know. it was an interesting <laughs> conversation on the topic that I don't know a whole lot about, so I was enjoying listening. Oh, great. 
but uh, I think you were going to uh, tell us a little bit about some, uh, you know, I guess problems with MD5 and where we should be going and uh, OAuth security flaws. So uh, take it away, Jim. The first thing that I wanted to talk about was a, basically a paper put out by a couple of researchers in France for the Network and Distributed System Security Symposium that uh, outlines a relatively new class of attacks against TLS, Ike, and SSH based on the weaknesses in MD5 that we've talked about on this show a, a number of times, and and by extension, in the not-too-distant future, the weaknesses in SHA-1 will probably mm -hmm. also yield uh, equivalent attacks. These guys call their attacks sloth for a number of reasons, but basically it's the, the problem is with the signing of the of the um, encrypted packets and you know, there there are some folks who are saying you know panic 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 and there are some folks who are saying well it's not really practical at this point but you know what's not practical today could very well be practical in a year or six months the the issue has to do with when when we went from TLS 1.1, the the signature algorithm was a concatenation of MD5 and a SHA-1. In TLS 1.2, they added some flexibility. Basically, they the idea was to allow the the newer hash algorithms, the SHA-2, you know, the 256, 512, eventually SHA-3. But in the process, they also allowed just plain MD5, and that's where the, the weakness really got introduced. It, it does, at this point in time, to successfully make an, you know, use this attack, requires um, the bad guys to be able to uh, either man in the middle or get the victim... To authenticate um, to a, a, a server that the bad guys control, and then on to you know the server that they wanted, where they want to steal the information. And there, there's actually a, a, a really good write-up by the authors. They they have a blog post that explains it uh, on mitls.org. Um, so if you if you want to look at the the diagrams that show how the man in the middle attack works and all of that, but um, but basically it, it is one more one more indication that these old hash algorithms we really need to get them out of our our crypto protocols. The RSA MD5 should not be used to sign anything anymore if if you care about the you know if you care about the crypto so jim have haven't most organizations stopped issuing certificates that um are, are based on some of the older hash algorithms yes in, in fact um here at the beginning of 2016 a, a number of the browsers uh stopped accepting new signature you know uh, new um, certificates signed mm -hmm. with SHA-1 that actually resulted in in some breaking some things when when Firefox did it just last week but the there are still existing uh, basically what the the browsers did is they would stop accepting new certificates that were signed with mm -hmm. MD5 or SHA-1 but they haven't gone back and stopped accepting old certificates because some of these certificates have you know longer lifetime. So trying to actually get the old ones out of out of the system takes a while. Right. So these are the root certificates that are actually that are 
in the browsers and in, sometimes they think they have a, like a 10 year life cycle. Is that correct? Yes. Some of them have, uh, have pretty long life. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, getting, getting them out is going to take some time, but you know, you, you need to set up your servers to a, you, you don't want, you want to make sure that your new certificates are not using the, the old ones. And you want to, you know, start setting up your applications and your servers to stop accepting the old ones. Because part of the problem with TLS 1.2 is the client and the server could negotiate their whether they would accept those signatures. Mm-hmm. And and that's one of the other reasons why these guys called it sloth. They were. They said it was a not-so-subtle reference to the laziness in the protocol design community in not getting these legacy crypto algorithms out of there once they're known to be broken. So, you know, because MD5 uh, has been, we've known it's been broken for over 10 years now, and SHA-1 for about seven. You know, they got, they got rid of MD5-signed uh, certificates a while ago, the browsers are now getting, you know, stop accepting new SHA-1 signed certificates. But getting the old stuff out takes some time. And I, I think the real the real point of the, the paper is, you know, to point out that there are new and different ways of attacking the crypto protocols. And yeah. as long as these old, weak, broken uh, algorithms are, are still in use anywhere in the system there there's vulnerability there so I don't think the sky is falling yet the the authors of the paper said the client side if you could get the client to authenticate to a, a controlled server or if you could man in the middle the they could uh, impersonate the client with about an hour's worth of computational time mm. um, Server side is still still a bigger issue, so it's it's not that the sky is falling and this is going to be you know a, a useful attack tomorrow uh, in most cases, but the the fact that it's down to an hour on you know commodity hardware means with custom built hardware and in the not too distant future you know give it six months or a year. Uh, it will be practical, and so the attacks against the, the other one parts of it, um, you know, the server-side attack or the Ike or SSH, those are, are based on SHA-1, so it'll take a little longer to get to that, but you need to get these old, broken algorithms out of your crypto systems. All right, out with the old, in with the new. So, uh, so OAuth uh, security flaws, I understand there's some things there, too? Yeah, this was another one, and I noticed the announcement of it this week. Um, OAuth 2.0, which is one of the most used single sign-on setups in the web, Um, Facebook, Google, GitHub, uh, all Mm -hmm. use OAuth to do do single sign-on. A couple of researchers out of Germany... Uh, did a a formal analysis of OAuth 2 of the standard, and they discovered two previously unknown attacks that could break authorization and authentication in OAuth. Fortunately, they have found solutions to them, and uh, the OAuth 2 folks are incorporating the fixes into the standards and into their products. But basically, the, there were a couple of significant issues here that that could have allowed um, impersonation, uh, you know, faking authentication. Yeah, so I, I know we were talking a little bit about this uh, I, before the show, and I, I think Francis had some, you had some thoughts of your own on this. Well, I, I think that the... Um in, in regard, OAuth, as you say, Jim, is one of the most important protocols for single sign-on and basically brokered identity. I mean, the whole problem of, uh, of, uh, of knowing who you're talking to, 
right, in any kind of an application, again, as a scale problem yeah. and manageability, and you know, anytime you find a security problem, you know, you have to balance the cost and the potential for errors that come with remediating it with the actual security vulnerability. And, and I was talking about it uh, before, earlier in the context in my, you know, in my world on the industrial internet side, the whole area of machine identity is completely undeveloped, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you think about machines, you know, robots that make cars, right. you know, there's never been any need for them to have a cryptographically uh, robust authentication mechanism. And they're terrible at typing passwords. <laughs> I'm not sure. I think I've, I've seen really, really big robots that can that can place little little electronic parts with sub sub ten tenth of a millimeter precision. So they're pretty good. At, at, they've gotten good. But my my point is that you know if you're going to integrate large um, environments of that kind of machine, heterogeneous machines, not just robots, but all the other machines that are next to them and integrate them with sensor systems that are doing analytics. You need to know who's on the other end of the line and it's an, uh, providing a robust, cryptographically secure authentication mechanism you know, to go along with the authorization and everything else you're doing is, is a key gateway function. That's you know, an essential thing that is, we're just at the beginning of thinking about. Yeah. The fact that OAuth, as you say, Jim, um, is kind of been, and I'd love to get, if you have time, I'd love to hear, because they did a formal analysis in Germany, uh, and I'm just wondering if you have any insights on the mathematical rigor that they use to come up and say, now we found two problems, plugged them, the rest of it's pretty good. Yeah, and I have not seen the, their, their final report uh, or anything, um, but yeah, they, they did find these two that they said were significant. The fixes uh, are, are in the process of being incorporated in, in into both OAuth and OpenID, which is is based on OAuth. I think at least important here is to again, this is another example like we've seen with OpenSSL. The big thing in you know 2014 actually was the big year for OpenSSL problems that yeah. you know really made us you know cringe. That we're still seeing in very fundamental internet tools findings of basic, I mean, they're hidden, but yep. there's still basic flaws in the implementation that we, we need to, to basically well, be prepared to accommodate. Did you observe, I mean, the, the, to that point, I mean, with Heartbleed and the, and the other one, I forget the name of it now, uh, that came up a few, few months later, mm -hmm. the thing that really got everyone's attention is it was a bug, a classic yeah. programming bug that had slipped in years earlier, and there weren't enough eyeballs on that code base, even right. though everyone in the world uses it. Um, to, to, to find it, and once somebody looked at it, there it was, and it wasn't a difficult fix. So, as you recall, during that year, 2014, somebody, and I forget who, and I wish I could give them the credit, uh, but somebody uh, funded a couple million dollars for a co consortium of people right. to start looking that at that created. code. I don't recall the name specifically, yeah. but it was, a, it was around the Linux Foundation to, yes, to exactly actually right. build a, uh, yeah. uh, an effort to review OpenSSL and start looking at some of the other things that are part of They're that. widely used. Uh, a part of the distribution, yeah. but had been built outside of the Linux structure and needed to yeah. be evaluated for their security. Right. Yeah, exactly Absolutely. right. Yeah. So yeah. it's, um, it's a, a very important development, I think, in the open source community yeah. that uh, probably needs you know, continued uh, bolstering to be able to make sure that that has Funding the robustness that's necessary. Yeah, just because yeah. we depend on all this stuff, and so, yeah. and it's not like it's hard to do analysis. Uh, you know, you, you, the I, I, it's hard for me to do that kind of analysis. But <laughs> remember what Eric Raymond said: it's like any 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 uh, problem yeah. with sufficient eyeballs becomes a shallow yeah, one. Yeah, you get the if you get the right people looking at it, and enough then of it, them. it can be done. Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, John, thank you, Jim. And uh, John, let's go to you. We'll take a quick look at this, this quick next one, topic here. And so yeah, this is, um, there's a, a kind of a free foundation project called the Let's Encrypt Project. And they're really founded because, um, you know, their goal is to provide free SSL certificates to site owners, you know, on the premise that if browsers are talking to websites securely, that's, that's a lot better than using regular HTTP that can be intercepted and viewed, especially if you're hotspots or Wi-Fi, you know, um, right. things well, like my that. my pet peeve is the tendency to try to use a self-signed certificate and call that security. Because, oh, you know, it, I mean, ultimately, if you don't know who you're talking to, you 
might as well not encrypt it, right? right, it, right. it could be encrypted just to send it to the, to the right. bad guy. So that's one of my, I guess, little things. If you can, if you give them opportunity to forge a certificate, it really does no good. So sorry for the no, <laughs> divergence. In, in any event, so the Let's Encrypt project, you if you uh, can show that you are in control of a domain name, um, and they have some ways that they go about this. They even have some automated ways to do it. Uh, so you don't have to interact with a human necessarily mm -hmm. to validate that you're actual real person. But as long as you have control of that domain, um, they will issue you what's called a domain validation certificate. And there's also some discussion in this article about extended validation. I was going to talk about that a little bit later on because mm -hmm. I actually didn't know the difference, but you've probably seen it and you just never realized that you've been seeing it before. But in any event, what they noticed is in the past month, and unless you've been living under a rock, over the past couple of months, you've noticed lots of uh, backdoor VAWTRAC uh, spam mm. coming out. Uh, I know we've noticed it, uh, a lot of our customers have noticed it and whatnot. Usually it arrives as a spam with a doc file in it and it's got um, uh, some VB script in there that if you allow scripting, when you open the Word document, it'll drop the payload on your machine and infect you. And VAWTRAC is a uh, piece of uh, banking malware. So they noticed that the Va guys running VAWTRAC were starting to use these Let's Encrypt certificates in domains that they are controlling for their callback stuff, or actually for the, um, the exploit as well. as So the drive-by exploit, I forget which one they're using again, but uh, um, in any event, <clears throat> the domains as part of the infrastructure they're using mm -hmm. encrypted websites. Uh, and the way they're doing this is a technique called domain shadowing, which has kind of been recently talked about. And basically what it means is if I'm an attacker, and I can pop your web control panel for your website. Usually in those web panels, there's the ability to add domains. So if I can get into your web panel, I now kind of have control of your domain because they give you the ability to add subdomains. So I might make, you know, mybotnet.somedomain.org or whatever, you know, that is in there. And then I go to Let's Encrypt and say, hey, can you give me an issue a certificate for my botnet.somedomain.org? And they say, sure. And they gave it to you. And now you've got an encrypted SSL session. So um, uh, the long story short of this is this is something to keep an eye out for in your browser and elsewhere in your enterprises. Uh, you would want to kind of keep an eye out for maybe if you have certificate monitoring. <laughs> What's that? Keep control of the domain. Keep, yeah, first of all, well, that's one thing. You know, if you are a site owner, you should really carefully protect your website control panels. CAs should also be very willing and uh, capable to respond when they get reports of websites or certificates that need to be revoked. Right. So they can be revoked, and then your browser will, you know, when you visit, it'll, uh, it'll show up. Just something to keep an eye out for. When you go to a regular domain-validated uh, SSL certificate, you'll get the lock in your browser bar, and I kind of show Firefox and IE here. Uh, that's the top one. Uh, when you go to an extended validation SSL certificate, it will be green, and they'll usually, in Firefox, it'll print some little description of who it's signed as or for, and in IE, it'll be a big green background in the, uh, in the title bar there. An extended validation just means that they've gone through a lot of extra process. There's still process for domain validation, mm -hmm. but for extended validation, it means that they really do want to talk to you on the phone. They want to go over through a bunch of other things. And I think Symantec is one of the big SSL certificate providers that goes through this extended validation uh, process. So uh, that's something visually you can keep an eye out for. It's a good thing. Yeah. However, that being said, lots of big organizations, big websites that you visit, Use regular domain validated certificates. So don't you don't necessarily assume that that's bad if it's a domain validated certificate. But um, if it's an extended validation, then you really have a lot better confidence that this is for sure. A lot of your banking websites will be have extended validation on them. Uh, the other thing I was going to say that I forgot about was one thing: if you in your enterprise, if you have the ability to monitor uh, for SSL certificates that go across as people are visiting them and whatnot, because that is part of a payload that a lot of your appliances will be able to inspect. Mm -hmm. While they won't be able to inspect the whole conversation, they'll be able to inspect the certificates that are exchanged. You can look for these Let's Encrypt ones, and that might be a good indicator of, well, maybe I need to look at this activity. Is this mm -hmm. legit, or is this rogue? Do I have a, you know, someone who's right. compromised with VATRAC or something else? Well, you um, should probably do the same for self-signed certificates, right? Right, self-signed certificates yeah. is another good one. Although you'll probably get a lot more false positives with that right now, um, but in any event, just uh, Quick observation. 
I'm sorry, would you say that uh, organizations that do their own, uh, run their own CAs, because a lot of the most security sensitive enterprises, mm -hmm. like military contractors, defense contractors, they'll say, well, you know, I got to run my own CA. I'm not going to trust Verisign. I'm going to do it all myself. Do they have more exposure? Because you're talking about uh, a level of awareness of this, this class of attack um, that adds to their burden, adds to their workload, things that, it's one more thing that they need to be concerned about. And the fact that you know they're doing it themselves as opposed to buying certs from a you know provider that does it all day long, does that create any additional or incremental vulnerability for them? Um, I don't know if it'll create additional vulnerability because I would still I would imagine that in those enterprises where they have their own CA, they've implanted that into their browser image for all their users to ha to say that anything signed by this you know, such and such military CA is legit. Yeah. I'm okay with that. Uh, but they're probably allowing all the other normal ones too, like VeriSign and yeah, Symantec exactly. and whatnot, sure. so. In a lot of cases, well, in some cases in the organizations like that, they'll they'll get rid of the ones that they, they don't want. Like the, the, the well, install true. image will, will constrain the certificates they're willing to accept. I, I think that's a classic buy versus build question. You yeah. know, it, it all depends on your level of commitment right. to be able to do the job yourself and be able to do it at least as well as if you were to outsource that. And activity. maybe the size of your organization. If you're yeah. going to be signing lots and lots of certificates mm -hmm. within, and it's really kind of a, a local problem in your network mm -hmm. for various websites and when a big enterprise, yeah. then maybe sign, having your own CA makes sense. But if you're, if you're small, right, you might not have as much need for that. Let's take a look at the uh, internet weather for the last week or so here. And uh, first item here is scan probes on port 111, excuse me, 11101 UDP. Uh, we're looking at the last 30 days of activity, and this port just kind of came out of nowhere. It has some characteristics that are similar to P2P. And uh, we'll look at the geographic map in a moment here. But, John, you took a little bit of a look at this. It looks like BitTorrent type activity. It's BitTorrent distributed hash table, DHT right. protocol. We've seen a couple other ports last year, and I can't remember which ones they were, doing similar types of behavior. And I don't know why we see these, like all of a sudden spikes in activity on these ports for that. I, I don't have an explanation that, for that I yet. I have a feeling it's uh, something that's sort of um, shifting around to, to, to uh, perhaps evade some type Maybe, of a- Maybe, but you know, with the way DHT works is I'm kind of like spewing out to the world saying, hey, do you know, are you sharing this info hash for this, mm -hmm. you know, this file? And if somebody answers, they say yes, and then you right. start talking to each other. So it's a peer discovery kind of thing, but you would think that there would be a more normal port that's more static that I'm going to look for. So yeah. I don't know. That's true. But in any case, the, uh, the geographic map of this is actually kind of interesting. This is a case where a significant concentration in the United States, South America, and in Europe, but very little in Africa and certainly uh, not in Asia. And, you know, considering that it's very rare that we see none <laughs> in other places. Uh, but what's even more interesting is it appears that, for the most part, the other end of this is actually almost exclusively China. So uh, there appears to be uh, some sort of a bias there. I think we had speculated, or it was a little beyond speculation, that uh, some of this activity that we had seen in the past around this had to do with uh, sharing some content. I don't recall specifically which direction it was going, but I thought it was actually Chinese language content coming so to, too. These, to these users. Um, so, but I had seen case, lots of other various yeah, things. Yeah, there were other things going on. Because I did take that, a bunch right. of the info hashes at one point and then said, mm -hmm. okay, let me go figure out who, what these are. What are they looking for here? Right. And you can find the file names because you can go up to like BitTorrent and plug in an info hash and get the file that yeah. it actually maps back to. So in any case, to cut to the chase here, if you see this type of activity, I, we're not aware of it being actually malicious, but it certainly appears to be uh, sharing content that probably shouldn't be shared. And uh, on top of that, it does certainly have some bias. So I would, I would treat it from an enterprise standpoint as it's suspect at the very least. In fact, uh, if you're allowing these you know, odd ports like 11,101 UDP through your firewall, you probably should review your firewall policy and, uh, and, and rethink that a little and bit. And if you watch the show and you know exactly what this is about, sit, write oh, us yeah, a note. Certainly, uh, <laughs> feel free to share it with us. We, uh, we're, we're, we look forward to uh, user input on this. Uh, next item, scan probes on port 52367 TCP. I didn't find a real strong association for this particular port although I did find some references to uh, XSAN, that is the, uh, basically a file system 
that's Apple's storage area network. So I'm not particularly familiar with the equipment that this is associated with, but apparently uh, there is a, um, uh, a third-party vendor that's provided uh, a product set that is uh, uh, compatible with Apple for storage area networks. And uh, so it, it appears that this port is associated with that. There's a single address probing this port. It happens to be coming from Russia. It did not look like it was necessarily a research organization. So I would treat that as uh, somewhat suspect in behavior. That has been going on for uh, several days now. So if you see that sort of activity, or certainly if you have are using uh, storage area network technology associated with Apple, uh, you might want to take a look at that and uh, see if there's uh, something you should be paying attention to from a security standpoint. Looking at the uh, top 10 most probed ports, this is specifically from uh, yesterday, January 11th. Top of the list is we've been uh, normally reporting port 23, and then we see uh, following that 53.4.13 UDP. That's the uh, Netis router backdoor port that we've been reporting uh, for several weeks now. We'll take a look at uh, both of those as we uh, continue through this a little bit more and uh, also look at a few others here. Port 80 TCP following that, uh, 22 TCP. Uh, we have seen some uh, you know, mild surges of uh, scanning activity on port 22. Again, generally looking for uh, to do brute force password guessing, which is necessarily even very brute force, generally looking for default passwords. Port 53 UDP, generally associated with um, uh, reflective denial service attacks. That seems to be on the uprise. We talked a little bit about that last week. 445 TCP, yes, there's still config out there, and there's also uh, uh, password guessing against uh, Windows file system, so, or file sharing. 443 TCP, the partner to uh, the port 80. 3389 TCP, we're gonna take a quick look at that one a little bit later, and uh, we're also seeing, it seems like a little bit of an increase in port 123 UDP, that's uh, network time protocol being used in denial service attacks. And then uh, last but not least here, 1911 TCP, that uh, is generally associated with a research organization uh, probing a port. John, do you happen to recall what that specific port was? I think it was a... Um, I don't remember. It's it actually, I, I an, it actually an industrial control system. Control system it is. Of some sort. So, I can't uh, remember the name of it now, though. Uh, if, if I had been... Uh, Thinking clearly, it would have probably have <laughs> brought that someone, to, yeah, to the table here. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, looking at the most sources doing that probing, port 23 is a big portion of it, but we've seen it it's, uh, taking a bigger portion of this pie, followed by 53413. Now, this is one where uh, that, that port is taking a big part of the pie here, relatively speaking. Again, we'll take a look at those uh, a little more closely here. And then uh, I guess the only notable one that I'll point out here is port 21 TCP, that's FTP, that moved up seven places uh, in the top 10 rank. Oh, no, you're right, seven places, sorry. So looking at the uh, number of scan sources, I'm actually, this is uh, the, uh, yes, yeah, so this is the number of scan sources on port 23 TCP Telnet uh, for the last 90 days relatively flat, not a significant change in terms of the number of sources doing that probing. I think it is sort of interesting to point out, see this little, there's a little drop in activity that's here. Make a note of that. Uh, we're looking at 90 days of activity and we're gonna, uh, I think, see a trend associated with that. Uh, looking at the number of probes on port 23 TCP, we had reported on this last week, it had just started a significant increase in the number of probes that were uh, taking place on port 23. Again, this is a brute force password guessing, generally against uh, home routers, uh, security surveillance, camera DVRs, some low-cost consumer devices that expose themselves to the internet. Again, we see that little uh, drop in activity that's uh, relatively recent. Now, when we look at port 53.4.13 UDP, this is that uh, backdoor uh, where they can basically send a packet that has some scripting information in it that uh, basically tells the, uh, the, the, uh, the device to go and download some scripts and you know, start be, basically become a part of a botnet. Again, in this case, we see that same little drop in activity, which to me tends to lead me to believe that there may be some uh, alignment or some uh, commonality in the command and control associated with the botnets that are scanning for port 23 and at least a significant part of it, part of it and a botnet that's, uh, that's scanning for uh, 53, 4, 13. So there may be a, uh, a relationship there. One of the things that we, we uh, uh, think about a lot with Telnet, with port 23, is medical devices. Mm -hmm. All right, There's a, there was that well-known hack related to uh, uh, a, a medical infusion pump and they're internet connected. 
all right, that doesn't have a, a strong password on it. And so it's interesting that the, 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 the route into a lot of home and deployments of industrial, this kind of you know, consumer IoT equipment, I can see you know, your thesis that those are linked makes yeah. a lot of sense. Yeah, in fact, it, well, even on top of that, one of the uh, significant concerns here is that uh, we tend to think of these home routers as the security perimeter of our home network. Yeah, and uh, when they have back doors in them, when they have vulnerabilities, in fact, uh, I, I don't have the graph here, but uh, what we've seen is uh, on some devices of port 22, sometimes there's a, like a, uh, I think a, like a JavaScripting attack against it that you can, uh, or maybe a cross-site scripting against the uh, device where you can get it to open up ports to the internet. Oh oh, and yeah. uh, we saw some devices yeah, where by, they would uh, have- Drive-by attack. Right, Like you load a page attack. in your web browser and then your web browser attacks your home router from the right. inside. Right, and that opens up a yeah. port. And so Sweet. what we have tended to think of as the security perimeter for the home network is probably not as good of a perimeter as uh, folks would like to think. And yeah. that, that really needs to get some improvement around it. Uh, to um, you know, so that we can gain some additional confidence in that. Looking at the uh, number of scanned sources on port 53413, we did see a, uh, a surge in that activity. Uh, I think this was just yesterday on the uh, on the 11th. It's not the highest that we've seen. There is, in fact, there was a significantly higher one about uh, four or five weeks ago. Uh, but um, that is still certainly some very active activity. Now, taking a look at the scan probes on port 3389, this is remote desktop protocol, which is, you know, sort of a convenience for any system that might be used for control that uh, might, I mean, this is something we certainly see for uh, point of sale registers. And <laughs> we, we see it in uh, remote control of industrial control systems right. and things like oil refineries. So you have a, maybe a control system, mm -hmm. but you want to be able to remotely access it or manage it from a central facility. That's the port they use. Right. And so this is one you certainly want to be paying attention to. Again, this is a case where they're typically doing password guessing activities. Uh, unfortunately, too many of them are exposed to the internet. This is a case where we're seeing over the last 180 days here, we're looking at 180 days of activity, you can see a very subtle sort of increase in the amount of activity that's taking place, which is a, a little bit of a, you know, a, a troubling trend. We've seen pretty steady about 2,000 source, unique source addresses that are doing that activity that is at any given time. So uh, it is uh, certainly stuff that's, uh, that's continuing as you go. So that's our show for today. We'd like to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at atttreattrack at list.att.com. And you can find the ATT Threat Track program on the ATT Tech, Tech Channel. It's on YouTube as well as on iTunes. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Security. And Francis, do you happen to have a Twitter handle? I think our, uh, Evan, our, tw <laughs> our Twitter, for, for, it's BayshoreNet, is that right? At Bayshornet, thank okay, you for the plug. Bayshornet, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so uh, if you have uh, any comments to, to share with, uh, with the Twitter audience, we're uh, certainly welcome that. So Francis, I'd like to thank you for joining us oh, today. Very good conversation. Thank you. I Thanks appreciate it very me. much. Uh, thank you, John. Yep. And thank you, Jim. I'm Brian Rexroad. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, keep your network safe. Views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.